Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Hi everybody, it's great to see all your familiar faces again. My name is Amy Jennings, Eli's wife, and if you are able to, please join us um, standing for the reading of God's Word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Verse 36, as they were walking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The the past two years have just highlighted a problem for us in our society, in our personal lives that was always there, but not at the tidal wave effect that it has had 
uh, recently, and I'm talking about the problem of just being bored, being dead while being alive. I mean, while the the fear of our physical envelope was at uh, maybe an all-time high, we became overwhelmed with dead hearts. The idea that we were bored, the, the idea that while we were physically healthy, something deeply problematic was going on internally that left us really confused, uh, wondering whether or not physical health even mattered at times. What have you done about that? What, what have you done about your, your boredom in life, about your, your, your dead heart at times? Because the number one answer that people have in Southern California for sure is the answer to boredom is fun. It's to try to find fun things to do, to look for a fun life, to look for an exciting life. But if you, if you try to solve boredom with being fun, that's like the quick slippery slope into um, addiction. Because the answer for boredom, the answer for a dead heart is meaning. It's a life of purpose. It's a, it's a heart that is alive about something. In 1947, a woman named Henrietta Mears was a Sunday school teacher at First Pres Church in Hollywood. And she was teaching a conference about having a heart that comes alive and is built on something meaningful for the rest of your life. And as she spoke on this topic, there were several people that were really intrigued about what she was talking about, and they went to talk to her afterwards, and they met in a room and discussed further and even began to pray about these things. Uh, they, they actually sensed an amazing experience as they were doing this. And what came out of that is that they committed to one another, that they're going to commit to one another to build their life about knowing Christ and about making the things of His promises known to the world. They're saying, this is what our life from now on is going to be about. The people who did this, Henrietta Mears, she went and started Forest Home Camp, started a publishing company. Uh, Luis Evans, he became the pastor at Bel Air Prez and then left to go to D.C. to become the pastor at National Prez on Capitol Hill. Rich Halverson became the chaplain of the Senate. And Bill Bright started Campus Crusade for Christ, which has reached over 50 million college students with the gospel. The covenant that they started with one another, the contract was called the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. They had hearts that were alive. They had a heart that meant something for the rest of their life. Do you have something like that? Because what you can get this morning, what this text says is that Easter promises that. The people who met Jesus here, when he walked away from them, they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he talked to us about these things? Don't you want a heart that's alive? If, if you want a heart that's alive, you can get it right now, but you've got to do three things with me. One, you've got to look at the evidence. Two, you have to be surprised by hope. And three, you have to have a personal encounter. Like to have a burning heart, look at the evidence, be surprised by hope, and have a personal encounter. One, look at the evidence. Look, in verse 16, Jesus walks up to these people. 
uh, they're on the road, and he engages them. Uh, but it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing, recognizing him. They couldn't see him. And then in verse 31, though, it says after their encounter, after they talk to him, after he talks to them about these things, it says their eyes were opened, and they saw him. Now, it's not a physical uh, transformation. It's something metaphorical happening, that they went from the inability to see him to seeing him. And what happened? They saw the evidence. Look, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ it is not an inspirational uh, event where you're just supposed to have your heart encouraged, or or we're just supposed to feel better about life. It's a historic, earth-shattering event that began to change the world. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, who is one of the more uh, renowned scholars of the 20th century, uh, represents what most people actually think about the resurrection, though. That when you hear this, uh, it's just meant to be something pretty for your heart. He said, the resurrection is not an event of the past, history, but only an event of the present kerygma. That, that's a Greek word for preaching or inspiration. That is, it didn't really happen, but it can sort of happen now for you right here in this heartful moment. But the problem with that is it just doesn't add up with, with the text and the account that Luke gives us. I mean, look, look in verse 41 and 42, Jesus says, it is I. He says, I, yeah, does, a, does a spirit have flesh and bones? And then he says, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And then, so they gave him broiled fish. Now, Jesus going to Long John Silver's with his buddies, what's the inspiration of that? There isn't one. Why is it there? Because Luke is recounting somebody's memories. He's telling you what happened. He's telling you how the things unfolded, that this really happened, that this was an event. What happened in the early church is they did, people didn't come around and, and have their lives changed, and the Roman Empire get turned upside down because some people just started being nice, or some people started having some sort of poem that came off in their head. What happened is they could not stop talking about and putting out there that a real man walked out of a tomb and became alive. They looked at the evidence. You know what? There's really two, there's there's tons of evidence we could look at, but there's just two right here in the text I'll, I'll go over with you real quick. A, the women. This has been talked about probably for good reasons uh, lately in the church, but, you know, the Bible doesn't condone this, but in the ancient Near East, a woman's testimony uh, in Roman jurisprudence or in Jewish jurisprudence was never valid. Uh, In fact, if a woman was going to be heard, it had to be uh, amongst a crowd of mixed company to be represented. And the women, you see this in the text, the women are the first people that see the empty tomb. They actually come running to the disciples and say, he's not there. It's empty. There's linen clothes. And then it says in verse 11 that the disciples, now remember, the people who are around Jesus, this is not skeptics. The disciples hear the women, and it says they thought it was idle talk. The Greek word there is the word uh, lepos. It means it's almost slang for an incredible story. It's as if they took him like a kid who said, I, I swear I saw Superman. That's how they took it. And now, some people have the theory that says women 
were looking for this. They wanted this to happen. They hoped it would happen, and they told themselves that it happened. But that doesn't make sense either because it says in verse 1, they went with spices to the tomb. That's what you do to complete a burial. You go to a dead body and put the spices on somebody to end their life. Now, why would Luke do this? Look, what Luke sets out at the beginning of his gospel is he's writing an account to this skeptic Theophilus who's not a Christian, he's not Jewish, he has no background in this. And he says, I'm going to give you an orderly account to prove to you that this man Jesus was the Son of God. Now, if you're going to do that, why in the most climactic part of the case would you rest that account on incredible, unverifiable witnesses in that culture? The only reason you would do it is because that's exactly how it happened. The women were the first people to see it. The second thing, you've got you to look at this evidence. As it says this in verse 52, it says they worshipped him. That is, when they saw him walk out of the grave, they didn't just say, well, that was cool, or good for you, or live your own life. They, they worshipped him. Uh, 1962, Thomas Kuhn, who was a professor at MIT for a long time, very influential scholar, uh, wrote a really monumental book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in the book, uh, what he says is he says, here's how science comes to play and comes to make uh, transitions and revolutions in our, in our world. He says, the world believes this, has this sort of paradigm, has this sort of a theory about something, and somebody out here uh, has a different theory. And what happens is as they're proving their theory, their evidence at first through the scientific method is, that, is tossed out for years as variables. Well, that, that's like they don't understand our, our, where we're coming from. They don't, haven't seen this evidence over here. And so every part of their theory is just sort of thrown out as a variable out here until they have so many excuse me, they have so many tests that prove this theory over this theory that what happens is everybody has to wipe this theory clean and start over. And he coined the phrase a paradigm shift. But he said, in order for society to get a paradigm shift, that usually takes two to three generations of life for that to happen. So that means if you're the outlier and you've got this theory that disproves everything that everybody's working on in this grid, you're almost never going to be able to see the fruits of your labors because people will dismiss that. But look this. Overnight, overnight, these people saw a man walk out of the grave and worshipped him. And even more so, Jewish people. These were the last people on the face of the earth who could have ever believed a man could be God. It was blasphemous, even today. Sincere Jews, they will not even say the name God. But these people went from calling him teacher to saying, worship him overnight and changed everybody's life around them. Why would they do that? The only reason could be because when Jesus said, it is I, it is me here, that must have really happened. And here's the point of all this. The resurrection is earth-shattering evidence that you've got to look at. Have you looked? 
Have you looked at this with your life? N.T. Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he says, imagine it like this. Imagine somebody gives you a painting of immeasurable value, immeasurable beauty. But the size of the painting is so enormous, it actually doesn't fit anywhere on any of your walls and work anywhere in your house. Now, what are you going to do with this painting? This painting of immeasurable value and beauty, are you, are you going to throw it out because it doesn't fit right now in your house? Or are you going to actually rethink about redoing your whole house because this painting is so beautiful and so immeasurable? The resurrection is so earth-shattering and beautiful. You have got to look at that evidence to be able to see it and open yourself up to that because these people did and it changed everyone's life. First, you have to look at the evidence. Secondly, though, you got to be surprised by hope. Look, one of the problems in Christianity today in America is we have all sorts of foolish stereotypes about what this faith claims. I mean, some people, some of you here, imagine that what God gives is a, a life now, and then we go to heaven and we're just stuck in this eternal passion conference where there's just music playing the whole time and the doors are locked from the inside and you can't get out. That, that's not at all what heaven is. If it is, I don't want to go. But look, what happened for these people is their stereotypes were blown away the way that you and I need to have stereotypes blown away. In verse 13, they're walking on the road, and Jesus, in almost, a pr- almost like a prank, comes up to these people, and he says, why are you so sad? And they say, uh, what do you mean? Like, you, you, you don't understand what's going on? Have you not been here? This man who we thought uh, was going to heal everything and come fix it all has been killed. And here's what's incredible about this. They say, we thought he was going to come save us and overthrow Rome. Now, Luke even records this in the first couple of verses that we read at the beginning of the service. But Jesus had talked incessantly, like over and over and over again, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised again, okay? I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised again, and it's going to be for the forgiveness of sins and life with me, okay? We're sad he didn't overthrow Rome, do you, do you remember a couple of years ago that, that, um, that thing that went viral, Laurel and Yanny? I mean, I, I remember like one of my kids brought it into Becky and I, and, and, and I think he just pressed play on YouTube. He says, what does this sound like? And I, I'm listening to it, and it just says, Yanny, 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 Yanny. Like, I'm listening to it, and I immediately says, it's saying Yanny. And Becky heard it and immediately goes, Laurel. And I'm looking at her like, like, what are you hearing? Where are you getting that? It's incredible what people think Christianity is saying and claiming and promising and hoping. Jesus says things and people think 
it's about politics. It's about hating kind of people. It's about being a good person. It's about teaching. What do you think the hope of this is about this morning? Because whatever you are, I guarantee you, whatever stereotype you have, I know death bothers you. And we all have to figure out one day what we're going to do with death and how we're going to make sense of it. There's a professor at Emory University, George Yancey, who teaches philosophy in Atlanta, wrote an article in the New York Times a couple years ago called Facing the Fact of My Own Death. Here's what he wrote. He's not a Christian. He said this, the fact of death is, ha- is like a haunting. It frequents me, entangled in everything I do. It's just beneath my pillow as I sleep, strolling next to me as I casually walk from one class to the next inserting its presence between each heartbeat in my chest, forcing its way into my consciousness when I say I love you to my children each night, assuring me that it can unravel the many promises that I continue to make, threatening the appointments that I need to keep. This sense of haunting is what Harvard professor Cornell West calls the death shudder. No matter how many times I've decided to try to remove the veil, the sting of our collective finitude continues to hit me, along with the reality of bodily decomposition and decay, the unspoken reality of death, which is the haunting background of our lives, shakes my body. I mourn for me and my students in humanity. I'm not sure if the death shudder will ever abate while I'm alive. I don't seem to be able to achieve the necessary adjustment, the solace of acceptance. Oh, man, did you hear what he's saying? He's saying that there is an irretrievability in life that's inescapable. And we're all going to face it. And so many times in life, we want to just like shove it aside, not pretend, but every once in a while, that bubbles up that you're going you're gonna to lose everything, and people are going to lose you. And we have no idea what to do with that. And, and, and whether you are uh, deep into this faith or you're somebody who calls yourself not spiritual, I know death bothers you. Do, you. do you know what this faith is claiming for you this morning? This is what Easter is saying. There are answers for death. And there are answers that will far exceed all of your hope. That will far exceed all of the things that you would hope for in this world and in any sort of retirement. Look, they say to Jesus on the road, we thought he was going to overthrow our enemy, Rome. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, oh, I have. I've overthrown the enemy behind your enemy, death itself, which means you no longer in me need to ever fear enemies. Look, Jesus, when he says, it is I myself here in the body, here's what he's saying. He's saying the resurrection that I have accomplished right now in this moment has changed death from an executioner into a gardener. So that if you're in him, when you die, what happens is the worst part of your existence 
gets sewn into him to one day not just float off into heaven and get a spirit and a harp and sit on a cloud, but to get your body back, to get a, to get a body you wish you had now. When Jesus is walking amongst them, do you know what that means? That means heaven is going to be here in California, on the West Coast, by the beach, without stain, without wrinkle, without pain, without insecurity, without anything. The resurrection is telling you, friends, that the material world is not going to end with your death. That love in your relationships is not going to end with your death. That means in Him, with the resurrection, you will miss out on nothing in this life. Like all of your FOMO, it's, it's all, all the irretrievability fears, it's all a myth. The, the only thing that you can miss out on in this life is if you don't start living your life now, every moment of every day in the freedom, in the joyful anticipation that the best things that you're going to get in this life are still to come. And Easter is God's historical stamp across the universe guaranteeing that you will get that. Now, I don't know what you hope for, but I I guarantee you what God promises you in that will far exceed any of your retirement benefits. And you need to right now let yourself be open to that surprise of that hope. Look, Easter, look at the evidence. Be surprised by hope. But thirdly, if if you want a burning heart, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life where your heart feels like it is full of something all the time, you gotta have a personal encounter. But the way that Jesus reveals himself in this, it it is so personal, and it is the picture of a Savior that you want. And it's not the way typically famous, renowned people reveal themselves. I was was watching the news, um, it was like a year and a half ago, I remember this. Uh, It was the Lakers played a game, and they made a big deal in the news because Jack Nicholson was at the game, and he hadn't been in a game in a long time, and he hadn't made a public appearance in a long time, and, and they made a big deal at the game. They're like, hey, Jack Nicholson is back here, and so he stands up and waves to the crowd, and everybody cheers and applauds him. It's like, yay, he's here. Jesus does nothing like that. He walks out of the grave and he doesn't stand up you know, on a mountain in front of millions of people and is like, I'm back. Hello. He comes up to two people. And he wants to talk to them. And he wants to engage them. And it says in verse, in verse 27, you know what the engagement is? Is he says, you're a fool. I, I want to tell you what actually is going on here and what's happening. And he opens the scriptures with them to try to help them make sense of all the things that have happened around them and the things that have helped happened amongst them. It, that the personal encounter with Jesus is that he, he does this Bible study with them. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the scriptures concerning himself. You know, he, he, here's what I imagine 
happened is that these people are so discouraged. They can't make sense of it. They're wondering if hope is gone. And Jesus says, you know why you're so down? Do you know why you're so discouraged? He says, because you don't understand how to read the Bible. Look, the, the Bible is not just some sort of random religious you know, activity that you need to keep up with, that you need to make sure you're doing to be a good person. He says, the Bible is about one thing. It's about me. I'm the long-awaited king who's come to take his people into the promised land. I'm the long-awaited priest who will, who will go into the holy of holies and make sacrifices. In fact, you know what? I'm the long-awaited sacrifice that will be able to make it okay for you to be a sinful, broken person and come into the presence of God. Look, I, I'm the long-awaited prophet who will come and to tell you not just the way of salvation, but to be the way of salvation. John Calvin, in his preface to Pierre Roberts Oliveri's 1535 translation of the New Testament, he says this, Christ is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. Christ is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who was such a great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who is in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers. However lowly and abject their condition, he is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once and for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the ta tablets of our hearts by his spirit. Christ is the faithful captain of our God, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land. Christ is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. Christ is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. Christ is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. This is what we should seek in short in the whole of Scripture, to truly know Jesus Christ, the infinite riches that are comprised in Him and are offered to us by Him from God the Father. If one were to sift through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Him. Do you know what they found in this little study with Jesus? is that this is not an abstract faith. Look, this is not just random religion, that you just do these things and you try to be moral and you try to check this part of your box, then you go to your academic part of your box, then you go to your work part of your box, then you go to your relationships, and then your self-identity, and then your status, and then your extracurriculars. He's saying, this life behind it all is me coming to commune and connect with you. I'm the one behind it all. I'm the one behind the letters. I'm the one behind the words. Have you experienced that risen Lord in a personal way? Where he comes to you personally and says, this is about me. This is for you. In John's account of the resurrection, 
he says that Mary is standing outside the tomb, just weeping. Weeping in sadness and the lack of hope in the world. And it says that Jesus comes up to her. And he doesn't just say woman. He doesn't say you person. He says just a word, Mary. And that one word turns all of her tears and sadness into hope and joy. On a personal way. Have have you ever heard that? What do you think it's going to be like when you die to meet God and to see Him and to encounter Him? I'll tell you what I hope it's like. Um, You remember the movie, uh, late 90s, uh, You've Got Mail? This, This is like the gospel in a nutshell. This woman, Meg Ryan, I mean, she just... She just can't stand Tom Hanks. He's the worst. She's never been able to say it to people before, but him, she can say all her feelings, and she just tells him he's, she's the worst person he's ever met. She hates him. But instead of uh, walking down the you for you, tack for tack, Tom Hanks is kind to her, and he's friendly. And all the while, he's writing her these letters and they're going back and forth. And he's continuing to meet her in person. And he's being incredibly kind and engaging to her, and she's still cynical. She's still kind of skeptical. She's still resistant. But the more he pursues her, the kinder he is, the more she softens up. And all the while, the letters that he's writing her are softening her more and more and more and more until finally she gets so soft that she wants to meet him. Now, the fascinating thing is she can't connect the dots, and she's also loving having these real-life encounters with Tom Hanks' character. And so in the final scene, she goes to meet her long-awaited person who's been writing her those letters. And as she's waiting there in a garden of all places, Tom Hanks walks up, And she sees him, and she begins to cry. And she says, I always hoped it was you, that you're the one who wrote all these letters to me. And his first words to her is he takes out a tissue, and he wipes her eye, and he says, do not cry. Now, what I hope it's like to finally encounter the Savior is that my cynical, skeptical, longing heart will finally realize everything I wanted in this life, everything I was hoping for. You. It's come true in you. In all of the heartache, all the irretrievability, all the things I was afraid to miss out on this life, his first words to my cynical, struggling heart would be to walk up to me and to say my name and to say, there's no more need for tears. Look, have you, have you encountered 
that Easter. Because that's the claim. And the Easter is God's stamp across history that that is coming. It, and if, if that is coming, how can your heart be dead anymore? Look, take it in. Take in the risen king. Look at this evidence. Look, open yourself up to the hope and meet him. No more tears. Amen. Father, Lord, these are things too wonderful to even speak about. And the hard moments in my life, the hard moments in all of our lives, Lord, they're so hard, we don't even want to admit them. And we'd rather be cynical. We'd rather be hard-hearted. Lord, I pray now, right now, Father, that you would allow some of us to meet you personally. That, Lord, the power of the resurrection could come into our marriages, come into our parenting, come into our identity, come into our jobs. Lord, meet us in the power of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.